Welcome to the first business case study for Don't Waste a Good Recession. As economies around the world shift from development phase to the planning phase, we're going to look at what I have done in my international business advisory career and what other businesses have done to seize the opportunity that is presented in a recession. For our first case study, we're going to look at a professional services firm that I advised in London. This is an example of how they doubled their revenue in a recession. For those who aren't familiar with the Great Recession, the global financial crisis and the impact that it had on the UK economy, it was a double dip recession. From 2007 to 2012, the UK economy went through two recessions. I moved my business to the UK towards the end of 2010. When it became clear that the GFC was not going to impact Australia as much, I took the advice of my mentor who said, don't waste a good recession. Go to the UK and learn so much more about business by helping businesses through that difficult time. And this was one of the businesses that I worked with. A little bit of background. They were a professional services firm. They weren't a traditional pyramid-style professional services firm. You probably know the one where all the work gets pushed down as far as possible onto juniors with the lowest hourly rate in order to ramp up profits. Instead, instead of having that up-and-out business model that restricts so many professional services, what this model does is it seeks to attract those experienced senior professionals who are looking for a balance of freedom and some of that collegiality. I've worked with about half a dozen businesses around the world who run this business model. It's probably my ideal client, a multinational professional services firm that using things like IR35 or franchise laws manages to bring together a community and brand and culture while also giving them a degree of independence to run their own business as part of that network. This model allows for fast growth, but it can also mean because there's so much independence that when the going gets tough, tough, go and get a real job. And if we look at what had happened to the revenue of this business, that was exactly what they faced when they hit the first of that double dip recession. They'd been steadily climbing since inception and in 2007-8 managed to turn over around about three million pounds. When the recession really hit 2008-2009, they dropped and the actual drop was very, very fast. It is not even represented in the steepness of that annualised downturn. Worse still, as the general economy came out of that recession, the business stayed flat. It managed to stabilise around about £2 million, but it was now over a year and a half since the recession officially ended, and they were still sitting at that level. They were still below where they had been heading into the recession. Now, how do you think the business felt as a result of that? How did the shareholders feel? Well, I mean, frustrated, exhausted, stressed. They were starting to bicker with each other. Everyone had a great idea for what to do, but nobody was willing to support each other. And at a shareholder level, we even saw some of the founding people, some of the senior people, leave the business. They felt they had opportunities to just go and do their own thing, implement their solutions, or to go and get a job somewhere. That, of course, was having an impact on the team. The team were feeling uncertain. They were feeling completely unmotivated because anything they'd done had not turned into better results for the business. And in many cases, they were stagnant because they were unable to leave. They were struggling to find jobs in the wider economy. So the business that I walked into at this time, that's how they were feeling. They were stuck. They were unclear about what they could do moving forward. And it wasn't that they hadn't done anything. Ask yourself, what kind of solutions do you think they might have tried when that recession hit and also post-first recession when they found themselves stagnant? 
These are probably some of the ideas that are going to come to you or to some of your business peers if your business is similarly affected by the coronavirus recession. Now, of course, the first thing they did was cut costs. They moved to a smaller office. They did reduce headcount. The new CEO, who was a replacement, one shareholder for another, came in and took zero salary. He felt that the equity growth that he might be able to achieve was more than going to compensate him for the fact that he couldn't take a salary from a business that was struggling. The impact of those cut, cost-cutting decisions on profit and cash flow was advantageous. The impact it actually had on revenue growth, momentum in the business, not at all. The best thing they had done was implementing an advanced communication strategy. They started putting out a lot more internal emails and that really helped stabilize the business. The natural tendency for a business owner in a recession when you have bad news is to communicate less. The reality is that what you communicate is always going to be better than the assumptions that may fill the silence. So even though they had amped up their communication and still seen revenue decline and then plateau, they had staunched the bleeding, and it's my belief that the business would have been much worse off had they not increased the volume of communication, even though, for the most part, they only had bad or fairly neutral news to share. They focused on recruitment. That's what had helped them with the growth, bringing in more senior professionals. But because of that flatness and because of some of the culture strain that was going on, they couldn't recruit, certainly not in the same volume, the high caliber people that they needed to join to get that growth. In some of the regions, because of the prices weren't controlled centrally, prices started to drop. So even though new clients were being won, they weren't necessarily being won at the rates that were frankly needed to support the business model. And again, in some of the regions, people tried a one-to-many strategy. Instead of going in and providing specific advice for one client, how about I get four or five businesses in a room, I can charge them a lower rate, they benefit because it's volume, I make more money out of the day. The reality is the people who were trying that were the ones who couldn't get the one-on-one -on -one clients. They had limited sales skills. They wasted a lot of time pivoting to a group model product, only to discover that the people who could sell were still selling, the people who couldn't sell couldn't sell even at a reduced rate. They were stuck for answers. Thankfully, the CEO had read my blog. He was on my newsletter mailing list and he thought it was well worth us sitting down in central London and having a conversation. So what did I recommend? The business had a good culture. Yes, it was struggling as any business would by that decline and prolonged plateau in the revenue. But the main reason it was struggling was that in a practical sense, the business was being split up. The model was that they would build regional teams. Again, freedom within a framework, some independence across the board meant that they would appoint a regional team leader who would support the professionals in that region. And because of some of that cost cutting, they weren't getting the team together as often. They weren't bringing all of those regional team leaders together to the office, they had a smaller office. Uh, and as a result, Different regions, different team members were having very different experiences. Since every professional was a seasoned expert, everyone had an idea of what the business needed to do to change. So not only did you have weakened communication, weakened culture, you also had this experience of, well, what everyone else is doing isn't working, you ought to implement my ideas. And that then led to an increased waste of time, waste of energy and fracturing of the community. So when I came in, I had a look at what they'd done. I made sure that I didn't knock down Chesterton's fence, that I understood why exactly they had tried each of those six strategies and why they hadn't really worked. And then I made these three key recommendations. First, 
I implemented regional leader group meetings. Now, there was quite an overlap between those team leaders and the shareholders, but it wasn't perfect. And what that meant was that shareholder meeting and uh, these regional leader meetings were starting to blur, were blending, and the communication wasn't strong. The cohesion of that group was not as strong as it needed to be. Now, they weren't necessary for the decision. That could be made unilaterally by the shareholders and in some cases by the CEO. But I wanted their buy-in. I needed their support to implement it. And in order to fund the change that I was recommending, I actually had to reduce by 20% the amount of money that went to each regional team. Again, we could have done that unilaterally, but I knew that having their buy-in and support, at least to give it a try, was going to make a real difference. So we implemented those conference calls at first, Zoom didn't exist, uh, and eventually we found ways to bring that group together on a regular basis, face-to-face. -face. Designed and then worked with the business to implement a national marketing strategy. They'd never had one. Whenever I hear a business say, we get all of our clients by referrals, that to me means they don't know how to do marketing. And that was exactly the case with these guys. Now in good times, you can bring an expert who can talk about their past experience and how that's gonna help, and enough clients will fall out of the trees. In tough economic times, you need to change that approach. Now, how did we implement the national marketing strategy to get an impact? My first focus was quick wins and a positive feedback loop. So we built a local website. We outsourced that to a specialist, so it looked great, it worked really well, and it was built quickly. And we started getting local blogs. It had been a global website that wasn't gaining any traffic. It didn't allow us to highlight UK voices, UK messages, UK professionals, UK clients. I very quickly got that website to number one on Google for a list of, frankly, not great key phrases, but they were something. We weren't going to win business out of that, but it meant I could go back out to the wider business and say, hey, we are now at number one on Google. It was a quick win and it was a positive feedback loop. They could start to see that what we were doing was making a difference. We also initiated their first national monthly email marketing strategy. Now, as somebody who has chaired the email marketing summit in Australia on a number of occasions, it continues to surprise me how many businesses think email is dead. They think that sending out emails to their existing relationships is just a waste of time. And yet these people are spending three quarters of their day sitting in their inbox. The impact that that had was enormous. It gave us a chance to reposition the business in the minds of people who only vaguely knew what those professionals were up to now that they had left private practice or had left their large corporate careers. It also showed to the market that we were here, that we were still active and achieving results. The feedback that was received at first and then the leads, the inquiries, the sales meetings we created was enormous. Six months after we launched the national marketing strategy, we did a survey and it demonstrated a 500% return on investment. All those team leaders that had dropped their income by 20% in order to fund this saw themselves earning more money, even on that smaller percentage, because of what they had done. And that's the goal of any investment that I encourage my clients to make. You need to demonstrate a return and particularly in a recession, speed of return of investment is critical. The third and final strategy that I recommended was redesigning their induction training. They had great processes. What their business model had done was take experienced professionals, give them a process for running their own business through IR35 as part of the brand and community and go out to market. What they hadn't needed to do and therefore hadn't done was really focus on sales and marketing. So we shifted induction training to be much more practical. 
to take those seasoned professionals and give them some sales and marketing skills that they hadn't needed in their corporate careers or in private practice, they hadn't never used before. Give them the ability to go out and implement those in their communities. What we actually saw was a lot of the long-term team members coming back and redoing induction in order to pick up those new skills. There's no point being the best at something in the world if you can't ever win a client to deliver that work into. Another great benefit of redesigning that induction training was that we were able to communicate that to the market through the national marketing strategy, and we started to once again attract great talent. People could see what we were doing to not just help advance their careers, to not just give them freedom and independence that they desired within a framework that supported them, but also give them some practical skills that they hadn't had before that were timely and relevant to running your own business through a recession. And make no mistake, sales and marketing in a recession is very different to sales and marketing at other times of the economic cycle. As a result of implementing those three strategies, revenue doubled in just under 18 months. And that's my goal always when I go into a business is to work with them to design the strategy, to work with their leadership team or specific team members to transfer some of the skills and to coach them through the implementation so that they can then implement that strategy for themselves ongoing. They can see a quick return on the investment in me. And long after I have stepped out or stepped up as their advisor, they continue to get a commercial return on their advisory investment. The last question I ask at the end of these case studies, what was the most valuable lesson I saw coming out of this? Now, this business model favours independence, experience, talent. That's why it appeals. That's why it's so much fun to me to go into these kind of businesses. But that independence means that when a market shrinks, when emotionally people become more insular, more focused on themselves, it can lead to a kind of every man for himself situation, head down, bum up. The best people in the business were still busy. They weren't necessarily being as generous, as abundant, and that was largely subconscious. Those who were struggling were stuck. They were lost. Uh, some of them were embarrassed to put their hand up. They weren't too sure how to go. And we started to really see that gulf between the people who could do the sales and marketing, who could respond, and the people who couldn't. As an external third party, I was able to come in and help have the hard conversations. I was also able to show them a way out, to look at what they had done, to explain why it hadn't worked, why they were still plateaued, and why what I was recommending was going to get them a different result. Critically, the most valuable lesson, despite all of that independence, despite the fact that we could have unilaterally driven some of those decisions, I prioritised the time to get buy-in across the whole business. And that then meant that I was able to shoot some sacred cows and it meant that I was able to move faster to get the quick wins, to get the positive reinforcement loop that allowed full implementation of the projects that ultimately proved my recommendations correct and got the revenue outcome that the business was looking for. Who's helping you to not waste a good recession?